Good morning, church. I am not Anthony. <clears throat> My name's Tyler. I'm visiting from Redemption Church, Arcadia. And we have some Arcadiaites here this morning. That's so fun. Arcadianites. <clears throat> Let me pray. I, I understand you guys every week pray for another church in the community. So I figured since I'm out of town, I'll take this opportunity to pray for a church outside of our community and pray for you guys. So I'm going to pray for our church. Um, Pastor Anthony and Jess are on their 10-year anniversary trip. Super exciting for them. So we'll make sure we pray for them, and please be praying for them this week that it's restful and um, all good things for their marriage. And so, and then I'll pray for our service as well. So pray with me. God, first, I just want to thank you for this community, this community which has endured so much and been faithful. Thank you, God, for the faithfulness of Redemption Flagstaff. Thank you for the faithfulness of the team that shows up week in and week out and sets all of this up for us. The kids' ministry, everything is set up every week, so we thank you for their faithfulness, and Lord, we ask that your favor would rest on this church. God, that it would be used mightily in Flagstaff to proclaim your kingdom, to preach your truth, and that your church here, as it's, as it's lived out here, that your church uh, would bring you glory, God. That this church would fall more deeply in love with you, Jesus, than they were the day before. And God, I'm just struck as I read the Gospels how important your favor is on your people. When you remove your favor is when calamity comes. So God, please let your favor rest on this community. Bless all that it does, and may it bring you glory. And God, we pray for Anthony and Jess. Pray that this is a restful and um, joyous celebration weekend for them that their marriage would be encouraged and strengthened. And God, for our service this morning, we pray that you would use me and use your words to be a blessing to your people, that you would be exalted and glorified, God, in this service, and that we, your people, would be humbled, that we would behold your glory and be amazed at your glory displayed on something as brutal as the cross. Our scripture reading has broken legs and um, spears being stabbed. It's brutal, brutal. Lord, help us to see instead the beauty of the cross, your power displayed in that moment. So God, by your spirit, make your words come alive today in our hearts that we would leave here more in love with you, Jesus, and more like your son, it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. I have a kid's ministry background, so I like to do that one. All God's children said? Okay. Our title for today is, It is Finished. The last words of Jesus. And right now in our story, our friend, our Savior, Jesus, is being brutally murdered. And these are his last words before his death. Now, by way of a disclaimer, if it's not already clear, this is going to be kind of 
a heavy topic. We're talking about an innocent man being brutally murdered. This is heavy. There's a family member I had that on a sermon I preached a while ago, do you remember when we were in Exodus and we're going through the plagues and I was teaching on some of the plagues and one critique from a family member was, yeah, it was kind of heavy though. And I was like, what do you want me to do? Tell jokes about how the water was blood. Isn't that funny? Um, There's sometimes in God's word where it's heavy. And this is one of the heaviest of the heavies. But I hope, like I pray, that you're able to see the beauty in it instead. As a church, I'll say this. We're not interested primarily in giving you sermons that only leave you feeling good. We don't want you to feel bad. But our purpose isn't to make you feel good. Our purpose is to preach God's word in all of its ups and all of its downs so that you might leave, again, like I prayed, in awe of the work of God. That, that's what, what we want from today. So with that said, there is power in last words. They can be tragic or beautiful, but often they're famous, they're memorable, and they're powerful. And some can be ironic. You guys know Nostradamus, his famous last words, and he was kind of a, I don't know, fortune teller or something. His famous last words were, tomorrow I shall no longer be here, which came true. A general named John Sedgwick said in the midst of a battle, his famous last words were, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. Those were his last words. Philip Henry famously said, Oh, death, where is thy? And then then died. Some last words are instructions to loved ones. George Harrison, the great guitar player of the Beatles, his famous last words were, Love one another. That's pretty good. Alfred Hitchcock, his famous last words was a quip. He said, One never knows the ending. One has to die to know exactly what will happen after death, although the Catholics have their hopes. Donald O'Connor said, I'd like to thank the Academy for my Lifetime Achievement Award that I'll eventually get. Those were his last words. Some are a glimpse into the inner thought life of the person dying, telling you what they're thinking about as they slip into death. Winston Churchill famously, I'm so bored with it all tells you a little bit about what was going on in his mind. Steve Jobs, uh, apparently his last words were, oh, wow, oh, wow. We don't know what he was seeing or feeling or thinking, but those were his last words. I mean, the most famous last words of all, Caesar, et tu, Brutus? His last words were, you're betraying me too? It tells you more about what was going on in his mind as he's dying. Betty White, who just died, sadly, in December, it's said that her last word was Alan, which was the name of her long-deceased husband. Tells you a little bit about what was going through her mind as she passed. There's power in last words, and not everyone gets the chance. But in Jesus' case today, it's both a glimpse of his inner thought life and instructions for us today. Let's read again verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, 
knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Stop there. So after this, we should be saying, wait, okay, after what? After what exactly? Remember what happened right before this was that Jesus, looking down from the cross, sees his mother and his friend John, the author, and says, woman, behold your son, behold your mother. He's surrendering the care of his mother as his death is drawing near to his friend John. Just imagine for a moment what must have been going through Mary's mind, watching her son be brutally killed. Writing about the crucifixion, Cicero reportedly wrote, to bind a man is a crime. To flog him, an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. And to crucify him defies language. Crucifixion was designed to be as inhumane as possible and prolonged as possible. The word excruciating has the word crux in it, cross, excruciating. And its purpose, the reason they do all this, is to publicly dissuade anyone else from breaking those laws. Now, when Jesus says, I am thirsty here, it says right before, he said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. We need to remember here that Jesus does not have a mental checklist where he's going, oh, what was that prophecy I was supposed to fulfill? Oh, I thirst. Okay. Um, I thirst. Done. Check. No, Jesus is expressing a real need, a real human expression that he's thirsty. That happens to line up with prophecies about him in this moment a thousand years before. He's probably quoting Psalm 22, verse 15, which describes my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. It gets, Psalm 22, if you don't know this already, Psalm 23, we all know, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. An amazing, amazing Psalm. Psalm 22, it's, the, it's thought that Jesus, this is his inner monologue. Psalm 22 is everything he's thinking and experiencing as he's up on the cross, prophetically. And verse 15 specifically mentions his thirst. Now, what's he given but a sour wine that was there in a pot? Now, remember, Jesus already refused one drink. Do you remember that? Now, that drink was laced with something. I should have done more research on this, but I didn't have time. It was laced with something that would maybe an opiate or something that would detach him from the pain a little bit. So it's meant to ease his suffering. He rejected that, but he, what he does accept is this sour wine. Now, sour wine is not like a gross thing, I don't think. I've not had it, but from what I understand, it's a popular Roman drink. That's why it was there in a jar. The Romans would have been consuming that, and someone thought, yeah, we'll give him some of this. This is fine. Okay? Now, they dipped a sponge in it, and they used the branch of a hyssop uh, shrub, a hyssop branch, which was a really common plant, but John's giving us a really, really big clue into something that we'll unpack a little bit more later. There's huge significance there. 
So with that said, let's read verse 30. Verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The epic last words of Jesus. This is the very center of John's gospel. Now, I'm going through seminary right now, and I'm taking a semester off because it's a long story, but my family and I just closed on a house. We're super excited, but there's a lot of renovation. Anyway, that just means I'm taking a break from this semester, but I was in the midst of learning Greek, and I have some Greek knowledge. So if I can just get Greeky with you guys for a minute here. You might know this already, but that it is finished is the Greek word to telestai. Now, people have made mountains out of the implications of this word, and it certainly is epic, but I'm going to try to narrow that down maybe into more of what John was thinking of when he included that word. Now, I warned you, it's going to get Greeky here, but this is a perfect, passive, third-person singular verb. All of those are important. Perfect, we'll talk about that tense in a minute, but passive, third-person singular. It's the singular work of God that has been completed. That's what Jesus is saying. And it has an ongoing effect into the present and implications for the future. Now, this was not like a big, magical, mysterious word that no one had heard, and they got their dictionaries, and they're like, oh, that's what he's saying. It was a commonly used word for merchants and sellers. When they completed their task, they would say, to die. it's done, it's finished. Priests and artists, same thing. When they'd finish their work, to die. it is finished, it's done. Now, I'm not convinced that John is using it here to speak of all things past and all things present, all things future, which I think lines up better with, with what we know of the kingdom of God, that it's here, but it's not fully here, is it? It's come, but it's not consummated yet. God's coming again. We are in that already and not yet. Tetelestai actually occurs twice in this passage. And we might have missed it the first time through, but it's also in verse 28. Look at that again. After, Jesus, after this, Jesus knowing that all was now Tetelestai. All was now finished. Now that helps us because it helps us narrow down what John's getting at. The first use give clues to the meaning of the second. When Jesus says it's finished, Here's what he's saying, that all that God has sent him to do, he has now done. He has been faithful, he's been obedient, and the work that God sent him to do is completed. That's what he's saying. Now, the whole of the Old Testament prophecies pointing to him, that's the singular part that's fascinating. All of those together are completed now, fulfilled and in the future, this is where I think it can affect the future, is that nothing is the same now. On this side of the cross, nothing is the same. Now, about God's finished work, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, For all the promises of God, I want, you, I want you to hear all the Old Testament, the promises of God, find their yes in Him, in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says that all the promises of God find their yes in him. And then it goes on. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 
So that Christian song that's sung in many churches, all your promises are yes and amen, that's what this is getting at. All God's promises are yes in Christ and amen as we sing and glorify God in those. Let's read verses 31 through 34 together. It says, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, <laughs> like is this is, as if it's not brutal enough, that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Okay, <laughs> why do they want their legs broken? Is this just like messed up? So think about on the cross, one of the ways that people primarily died was suffocation because you need to push up to breathe and your weight sinks you back down. You can imagine with broken legs now, that becomes impossible. And if you are alive, within a couple of minutes, it's over. So the Jews are saying, can we speed this up a little bit? This is kind of dragging on a little bit. Can we speed this up? Go ahead and break their legs for me. Now, when they saw Jesus, they saw that he was dead. They could tell. Remember, these Roman soldiers were trained executioners. They know a dead body when they see one, and they saw that guy's dead. We, there's no point breaking his legs. So then why did they pierce his side? This was to verify what they already knew. He's dead, and when I pierce his side, blood and water comes out. That's a clear sign of death. John's given you so much detail here because he wants you to know Jesus was not just unconscious. He hadn't just passed out. He wasn't in some kind of coma. He was dead. Okay? And the Roman soldiers knew when you pierce a side and blood and water come out, that's a, that's a clear sign of death. Why did they want to speed this up? Well, like it says, the day of preparation was coming. It was Passover week. They were preparing for Passover. Now, the laws that they're keeping are in Deuteronomy 21, 22. It says dead bodies shouldn't remain, and in Joshua 8, 29, dead bodies shouldn't remain up for Passover. So they're trying to keep the law by speeding up the murder of this innocent man. Are you starting to see the irony here? God's people were more concerned with keeping the religious law of Sabbath than by murdering an innocent man. Of course, they don't think he's innocent. But Pilate and more agree that he was. Now, it's described back in verse 29 that the wine was given to Jesus on a hyssop branch. John's given us a huge clue of the irony of Passover week. The Jews are preparing for Passover week. They're getting a sacrificial lamb ready. They're using hyssop branches to mark the doorposts of their home. John is saying here, if you remember in Exodus 12, 22, God's people are instructed after being freed from slavery 
that God says, use it as a branch, dip it in blood of a sacrificial lamb, put it on the doorpost and on the frame with a hyssop branch. Now, there's nothing special about a hyssop branch. It, was, it just grew out of the walls everywhere. It was common back then. But just grab some of that, dip it, and, and use that. So by John's inclusion here, he's given us some signals, some alarm bells of, wait a minute, it's a branch. Okay, I know what's happening here. Now, some have speculated, and it is just speculation, but it's interesting, that the blood marks that Jesus would have left on the cross would have, could have possibly lined up with the blood on the doorpost with his hands and his head in the center, which is interesting. John's making a point also about Jesus' bones not being broken. That's another thing that the sacrificial lamb must have. All their bones cannot be broken. The Passover imagery is all over this text. And God's special people, his set-apart and holy people, are missing it entirely. They were so concerned about prep for the Passover week that they overlooked the Passover lamb as he stood over them. Let's read verses 35 through 37. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture, which says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. John, the author, is very concerned with your belief in these accounts. He wants you to know that this is not made up. Other people saw this. This is fact, historical fact. And all these scriptures he's quoting, which include Exodus 12, 46, Zechariah 12, 10, Numbers 9, 12, Psalm 34, 20, all of Psalm 22, Revelation 1, 7, which he later wrote. He's giving so much detail about the blood and water because he wants you to know this guy was actually dead. It wasn't a coma. He didn't pass out. Why? Because like he says in verse 35, he wants you to believe. Believe that Jesus really died. Believe that he was then raised up and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's what it says if you flip a page in John 20, verse 31, this is like John's um, thesis statement for this book. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is what John is so concerned about our belief. Now, one common question in the face of such brutality of the cross is why did it have to be that way? What kind of father does that do a son that he loves? Now, to think of the brutality of the cross as only some kind of cosmic child abuse misses the inseparable unity of the Trinity. It was not just Jesus up there as God's son. It was God himself up on that cross taking it all. And also, don't assume that Jesus was without options up there. In fact, his strength, his power was displayed in the fact that he stayed on the cross. 
when you consider that he had the power to come down off of that cross to destroy everyone who was seeking to destroy him, the fact that he didn't shows you his love, shows you his power. The Africa Bible Commentary says this, and it was so piercing, no pun intended, but he said, clearly pain and God's providence are not contradictory. Let me read that again. Clearly, pain and suffering and God's providence are not contradictory. God works in the pain. There's purpose in the suffering. Church, be encouraged. God works good from our suffering. He does. He will. We might not get to see it, but we might. But we trust and believe that he does and he will and he is working good from suffering. Now, us here in this room, believers in Christ are evidence of God working good from this suffering. From Christ's suffering on the cross, you and I are evidence of God's providence in that. I've been trying to read through the more of the Bible more quickly, and so I've been doing the Bible reading in a year. I'm way behind already, to be honest, but I'm going to try to get back. Um, just a real moment right there. Um, as I was reading through the Gospel of Mark, the theme of belief hit me so hard like it never has before. Mark is where Jesus' some of his first words were, repent and believe in the kingdom of God. Repent and believe. When Jesus leaves his hometown, it's because he marvels at their unbelief. You have this, the famous story of the father, and Jesus says, if you believe, the father says, I believe, help my unbelief. Belief is key to Mark's gospel, is a key to Mark's gospel. And clearly here in John, he wants us to believe these words. And I have to ask, church, what could be holding you back from belief? Maybe you've never put your faith in Christ. You're here, you're curious, you feel like there's something here that, that God's doing, but at the end of the day, you wouldn't say you believe that, that Jesus was, I mean, usually the sticking point is raised from the dead, right? That's the one that takes a lot of faith. Maybe you would say you wouldn't believe. I think John would say to you and Mark, believe. What does it take for you to believe? What's holding you back from belief? Now, for the Christians here, I think the call is the same. What's holding us back from deeper belief in the Word of God? When we read something that doesn't align with our lives and we go, mm, yeah, but I'm going to... I'm going to keep that thing. I, I think John and Mark would say the issue there is belief. You don't believe that that way or that thing is good or that promise is true. Now, I can't answer that for you. I don't know what's flashing through your mind right now, but I was convicted in thinking about those things that I'm holding back, that the root of that sin, that struggle is unbelief. What might God be calling you in towards deeper belief today? 
Now, as closing thoughts, I say closing, but I've got a page and a half, so don't take me too literally on that. I want to go back and ponder some of the things in some of our verses today. I want us to just kind of slowly consider some of the symbolism because I think John so carefully crafted this part that it would be unjust to read it quickly and pull a thing or two out. So I'm a new poetry lover, maybe like two years in, and I love it because of this. You cannot read poetry quickly. You just won't get it. It goes way over your head. Good poetry. So the only way to read poetry is to read it slow, read it a bunch of times, think it, be curious. So we're going to maybe practice some of that. Okay. Back in verse 28, why? Let me ask the question. Why was it in that order that Jesus knew it was finished? Then it says he got a drink, and then he said it's finished. As if maybe getting a drink was like one last prophecy or something. What's interesting there, and commentators have speculated here, but it, I, th I think it's right, that what's happening is <clears throat> Jesus knew it was finished in his mind. He wanted to proclaim that, but maybe his throat was dry. So he said, I need something to drink first. Got his drink, wet his throat, so that he could now proclaim loudly, it is finished. This is Jesus' victory cry not defeat. It looked like defeat. Everyone standing around who had crucified him thought, we got him. It's, he's finished. It's done. Jesus loudly proclaimed his victory cry after wetting his throat. After he says it's finished, it says he bowed his head. Let's think about that. Last time I was up here preaching, it was in John chapter 6, I think, and it was when Jesus was feeding the 5,000. John does this thing with Jesus' eyes. That's always fascinating. Before that miracle, where he breaks the bread, it says Jesus lifted up his eyes, had compassion on the people, and then, boom, this cool thing happens. So here, John's doing the opposite. He's saying Jesus lowered his gaze. He, he lowered his head. He bowed his head. Now, one, bowing the head is a form of submission, to God, even in the moment of death, Christ is submitting to God. But also consider as he looks down, who's there that he's looking down on? His church, his people. He looks down at them as they are looking up at him. Now that is a rich, rich image throughout Scripture, but in Numbers um, 21, there's that bizarre story of God's people sinned. God sent these fiery serpents out that started biting and killing people. And God told Moses, build a bronze serpent on a pole, set it up. And when people that get stung run over and look up at it, they're healed. Now, Jesus in John 3 equates himself to that serpent, which is shocking, by the way. Serpents, never something that Jesus would be equated to. But in this moment, remember, Jesus became sin and death in this moment. Now, the people look up as he's looking down. That's our call, church, to look up at Christ and be healed, to look up and be saved and restored and renewed. After that, it says Jesus gave up his spirit. 
I think that language is intentional. Nobody was going to take his spirit from him. But now that his work was completed and the church began, although it was a fledgling church of his mom and some of his friends, the church began that has now spread to you and I thousands of years later. That's crazy. Jesus' work was finished, and he gave up his spirit. That word spirit is the Greek word pneuma, and the next time we see that is the coming of God's spirit in the church, when God establishes by sending the Holy Spirit into the church. I don't think John's saying that Jesus gave up his Holy Spirit, but just as a way of wordplay, he gave up his spirit. Next time we see that spirit is in the coming and establishing of the new church. Jesus' last words were, it is finished, not I am finished. He's not done. He's, he was just getting started, and he's not done still, and he's not done with you. Praise God for that. He's not done with me. It is impossible to add to the tetelestai, the finished work of Jesus. One pastor said this kind of funny. He's like, it's like looking at the Grand Canyon and you spit into it and you go, there, I'm helping God. Colorado River, you're welcome. We didn't really help, did we? It's kind of gross too. We kind of made it worse. We can't add to the finished work of Christ. Our debt of sin is paid in full. How often do we hear those words in life? When we pay off our car, your debt is paid in full. Oh, what a good feeling. When we pay off our house, which won't be for me for 30 years, but eventually I'll hear the words, your debt is paid in full. What a good feeling that'll be. It's hard to accept a free gift like that. I was selling something on OfferUp. It was like a, a skill saw that I needed for a little project and I didn't need it anymore. And it wasn't worth much, so I was like, I'll just, I'll give it for free for whoever wants it. Okay, so this guy contacted me, Dennis. Here was his first message, ready? If it's really free, I'll take it. He's doubting my free skill saw for some reason. If it's really free, I'll take it. And I was like, it's free. Don't, yeah, please take it. I'll put it outside for you. This was his next message. If it works, well, then let me buy it. I'm not looking for something for free. <laughs> he was struggling with this free skill saw. Okay, and then I said, it definitely works. It's in, it's in perfect order. I've got a couple extra blades for you. There you go. Take it. It's yours. His response then was, okay, thanks. I'll make sure I pay it forward, though. <laughs> okay, whatever you want to do, go for it. I'll put it outside for you. When I came home... He had, I checked my phone. He'd sent a message and said, hey, I picked it up. Thank you. And he said, I left you some money for it too. He just could not accept a free skill saw. Would not do it. Think, I mean, I think that's true for us. It's hard to accept a free gift, especially something as powerful as grace, as forgiveness of sin. That's difficult. Romans 6 gets into this, verses 22 and 23. But now that you have been set free from sin, Christian, 
and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a free gift, church. So Redemption Church, be encouraged. Be humbled that our redemption is secured in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Believe that. Receive it. Work to receive it and make Christ's last words your same victory cry. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for your finished work. When you said it was finished, you meant all the promises in the Old Testament are now true in you. They find their yes in you. And that you were faithful and obedient to God's call on your life, faithful to the very end, bowing your head in submission before you gave up your spirit. God, forgive us for the times that we read your word and fail to apply it, fail to align our lives to it. God, help us to accept the free gift of grace and in return, as an act of loving worship, give you all of ourselves. Our salvation is secure. Your promises are true. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.